turn your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 27. We continue our study through Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 27, beginning with verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, I know them of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell us about to tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. And may God add his rich blessing to the reading of this portion of his holy word. Will you pray with me, please? Again, our Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that by the power of your spirit you would come, and that you would speak to us, that you would open our ears, that you would open our eyes, and that you would open our hearts that we would see our Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up, that his sheep would hear his voice, and that we would know him and follow him and offer ourselves to him properly and sincerely. So speak to us now in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. We have an odd title today, Ambiguity Tolerance. I first encountered that term on a class syllabus. You know, every class has a syllabus. It tells you what class you are in, so if you're in the wrong one, you can get up and leave before it starts. 
It tells you what books you have to read, what your assignments are, and the due dates. Well, I remember one time on a syllabus, one of the goals of the class, it said that the students would learn to be tolerant of ambiguity. I had no idea what that meant. As far as I could tell, whatever it was, it had nothing to do with the subject of the class, and the instructor never said anything about it. But at least the odd term stuck in my mind, and 30 years later, I got a sermon title out of it. Ambiguity tolerance is a term from psychology. It has to do with one's ability to handle ambiguous circumstances. Or to put it another way, how well can you deal with uncertainty? There's a degree of ambiguity on several points in this passage. Not the facts. It's a straightforward account of real concrete events that happen in the life of David. But the text records David doing things that are at best questionable and at worst flat wrong. Yet the passage itself does not give any moral evaluation of David in these situations. But you know, even when passages of Scripture do not come out and say, this fellow did wrong... They generally use some type of a literary convention to get the point across, but not here. We're simply given the facts. And furthermore, it has been pointed out that God is not mentioned anywhere in this passage. Now, in a sense, that's no big deal. Not every verse in the Bible has to mention God directly. You know, God is never mentioned one time in the whole book of Esther, yet Esther is a book about the providence and involvement and nearness of God in this world. So this passage simply reports the facts with no moral interpretation and no mention of God. And so for us to deal with it is going to require some tolerance for ambiguity on our part. And there are conservative, very conservative scholars committed to the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible who come down on different sides. Some commentators think David was absolutely heroic in his passage. Others say he really blew it. And that leads me to conclude that that's probably not the point. Let's find out what really is the point. First in this passage, we see despair. Despair. Look at verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul, There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hands. David says, Saul is going to kill me. You know, last week we saw in chapter 26 and verse 10 that David said the opposite. 
as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, that's all, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. In other words, David said, God will kill Saul. Now David says, Saul's going to kill me. You know, David had been anointed king by the prophet Samuel. The prophet had proclaimed David would be king. Jonathan, Saul's son, had acknowledged that David would be king. King Saul himself had said that David would be king. Most of all, the Lord God Almighty had said David would be king. And David knew it. But Saul keeps on chasing him. Saul keeps on trying to kill him. Exhaustion is setting in. David's not thinking clearly. It's understandable. But it's still wrong. General Thomas Jackson, better known as Stonewall, considered one of the greatest commanders in military history, even by his enemies, was heavily and rightly criticized for his poor judgment in late June of 1862 at what is known as the Battle of the, or the Seven Days Battle, or battles, due to sheer exhaustion. A brilliant mind can make horrible decisions in a state of exhaustion. David, in his exhaustion, is losing hope in God. He displayed brilliant faith just a chapter earlier, but now he sees no light at the end of the tunnel. Exhaustion is leading to bad judgment. As the trial presses on and never lets up, David's faith in God wears thin. Have you ever been there? I understand that. Been in a rough time, trusted God. People commented on how strong my faith was in the trial, but a couple years later, and it was still going on, I remember saying, I don't know if God's really going to take care of this anymore. We read in Scripture that John the Baptist proclaimed when he saw Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And we read that two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. But then we go on and read that when John the Baptist sat in the jail cell day after day languishing in the pen, he sent messengers to this same Jesus whom he had preached and to whom he had sent people to follow. And he told the messengers to go ask Jesus, are you really the one or do we need to look for somebody else? Think about Job. 
Job was under fire, one disaster right after another, after another, after another. And like David, there is a mixture of brilliant faith and sinful thought patterns in Job. Job 13, 15, and I highlight part A, is one of the greatest statements of faith in all the Bible. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. God can kill me, but I'm still going to trust him. No greater statement of faith than that. In all the Bible and all the history of the world, Job 13, 15a. I point out that that's part A because Job 13, 15 part B is sinful. The same verse, Job says, though God slay me, yet will I trust in him. Job says, but I will maintain my own ways before him. You see that mixture of brilliant faith and sinful thought patterns. It's here in David. He's been trusting God, but now he despairs and decides his only hope is to go and be with the Philistines. And you remember how in chapter 26, David had complained that with Saul chasing him and him being on the run constantly, he could not go worship God in the assembly at the tabernacle. That was his great pain. Now he decides to take it even further and go live among the idol-worshiping pagans in Philistia. Gath. That's despair. Secondly, and finally in this passage, we see deception. Despair and now deception. Look at verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day, and the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now, this Achish was son of the Philistine king. And David and his wives, plural, lived with Achish at first. But, but now you see, David says, why should a lowly servant like me from another country live in your royal city? Please just let me live in a country town. It sounds so humble. But his real motive is to put some distance between himself and Achish so Achish won't know what's really up. Look at what David does when he is sent to Ziklag out in the country. Look at verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gisharites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. 
And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments and come back to Achish. Now these people that David attacks here in verse 8, the Geshurites, Gerzites, the Malachites, these are the enemies of Israel. At least one of these groups, the Amalekites, Israel had been commanded to destroy them. They were put under the divine ban to be devoted to total destruction. And you remember King Saul had failed to carry that out. So David, though he has fled to the land of the Philistines, he's got himself in a position where he can help Israel. He can fight Israel's enemies from Philistia. But he lies to Achish about it. Look at verse 10. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. See, he says he's attacking Israel, the enemy of the the Philistines, and he's attacking friendly neighbors of Israel when he, in fact, is fighting for Israel. And he makes sure to leave not one soul alive when he attacks so no word can come back of where it was. David's deceit allows him to gain the trust of Achish. Look at verse 12. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. He's convinced Achish he's actually attacking Israel. Achish says, oh, they'll never take him back in Israel now. He can't go back. He's burned that bridge. He's mine now. He's my servant. I can trust him. Then David flat out lies, telling Achish that he will help him fight Israel. Look in chapter 28, verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. So now David, the true future king of Israel, has gained the trust of Israel's greatest enemy. Because David has despaired of surviving the relentless pursuit of Saul. He's now deceiving the Philistines. Despair and deception. What are we to make of this? First... 
God can use sinful actions to save his people. God can use sinful actions to save his people. David here is doing some clearly questionable things. He's doing some things that are clearly sinful. Yet the Lord is using it for the good of his people. David is attacking the enemies of Israel even though he is lying about it to Achish. As old preacher in Aberdeen, Scotland, William Steele used to say, God uses sin sinlessly. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't take away the responsibility of the sinner. There ought to be some encouragement to God's suffering and long-suffering people that he can bring good out of the worst circumstances. We read that God used the worst moral event or the most immoral event in the history of the world to bring about the salvation of the world that was guilty of that crime. Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost said that this Jesus delivered by the determinate plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by lawless men, a wicked, lawless crime, the false charges, the sham trial, the beating and scourging and crucifixion of the only innocent man that ever walked this earth, the greatest crime, the conspiracy behind it, the betrayal. It was the definite, determined plan of God. To save the world. So God can bring good out of the worst circumstances. He can even use sinful acts to save his people. Secondly, we can draw from this passage that God never gave up on David. Now David is losing faith that God will keep his promise. And so he runs off to Philistia. And the text never mentions God. There's a reason why. David wasn't really thinking about God. All he could see was himself and Saul and this endless game of cat and mouse that never gets resolved and his life constantly in danger. He's not thinking about God. There's also a reason why the text does not make moral judgments and it's because that's not what it's about. It's not about David's 
lack of a grip on reality or his lack of a grip on God. It is about God's grip on David even when David was stumbling. The Bible does not say Jesus did not promise that nothing can pluck God out of our hands. He said, no one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. And no one can pluck them out of my hand. The great preacher John MacArthur, who in these dark days has become something of a hero to many of us, said so many years ago, if I could lose my salvation, I would lose my salvation. If David could lose it, he would have lost it. But God never turned him loose. And the final thing we can draw out of this passage are these words found on your bulletin that we will sing in a moment from Psalm 118. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. As God gives us the history of the life of David, the great king, the Lord continues to be relentless in his determination that we not mistake David for the greatest king. There's some ambiguity in this passage. We just got to be tolerant of it. But there was another king about whom there was no ambiguity whatsoever. There was no ambiguity about any of his actions, about any of his motives. He was absolutely perfect. There was one king who never once in the relentless attacks upon him never doubted his father and in whose mouth not one deceitful word was ever found. David worked to save Israel by sinning. But David's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ, never sinned, but enduring the sin of others that he did not commit. He brought the salvation of the world. Now there's a reason why this passage says so little in judgment on David one way or the other. It's because there's not so much about David as about a greater king. And this passage is telling us put no confidence in princes. It is better to trust 
in the Lord. Not even King David, the great anointed king of God. Not even he was worthy of people's trust. No king, no earthly ruler or governor or premier or prime minister or president is worthy of man's trust. Jesus Christ alone is our king. It is better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in princes. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.